Welcome to the Future of Coding. I have a very fun interview today with Mary Rose Cook, who is a programmer currently working at Airtable, though I know her from her thousand and one side projects, including Gitlet, which is an implementation of Git in about a thousand lines of JavaScript. She's done a very interesting couple of interactive code editors called Code Lauren and Isla, which we will talk about at quite a bit of length in this episode. She's made a number of interesting excursions into giving people insights into the workings of compilers and interpreters and systems that are opaque in their operation, but that through interactivity and through visualization and through play, especially, you can develop an intuition for how they work. So we're going to get into all that stuff in the interview. It was quite a lot of fun to put this episode together, and I think you will enjoy it. We have two sponsors today. I'm going to put one of them in the middle of the episode. Am I actually going to do that? Let me just zoom out here and check. Oh, yeah, I'm going to put both of them in the middle of the episode. So I'll come back and, and uh, give you more details about them both when the time comes. But just right off the top, I want to thank Replit, as usual, for uh, sponsoring the transcript. And our new sponsor, Glide, doing some very interesting stuff with uh, spreadsheet-backed app generation. And so we're going to talk about that a little more at the break. For now, let's get right into it. So uh, here is my interview with Mary Rose Cook. I was reading some of the links from your website and, and playing with the projects and all that sort of thing. And in one of the articles you linked to, you mentioned that as a 14-year-old, you picked up the 700-page book, Foundations of Mac Programming, <laughs> and that that was perhaps your introduction to programming. Is that true, that that was your first sort of encounter with it? Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Um, it was a difficult book that I picked up um, that was called something like Mac Programming Starter Kit that you could buy in my local bookshop. But it was the same idea. It would kind of take you through programming from the beginning, um, both in C on the Mac. And I, in fact, bought Foundations of Mac Programming because I'd found the prior book too hard to understand what was going on. And Foundations was easier. And so that's the one that I ended up working through in full. And what was it that sort of drew you to want to do that sort of programming to go from, I'd assume not having much exposure to programming to then picking up a, a quite a large tome about it? I played around with a tool called ResEdit that was came with the Mac back in the day and the system seven days of Mac OS. And Back then, Mac programs were sort of composed of two chunks, some, some code, uh, some binary code, and then some what they called resources. And those were things like sounds and images and text. And with ResEdit, you could edit those parts of any Mac program. And so you could like change the icon, for example, or change the images if it was, let's say, a game or something like that, or change the sounds. And so I'd kind of been messing around with my parents' computer using that tool. And then I somehow found my way to the programming section of the local bookshop and saw there were programming books. And I think I bought the kind of couple of easiest looking ones that, that promised to take you from the beginning. And a crucial component was that they came with an IDE that you could install, which would kind of at least get you going really with those with an environment where you could actually write and run code. 
That makes so much sense. I also was a was a Mac user my entire life. Um, I remember quite fondly ResEdit, and uh, I, I, as I talked to people and learn about their their histories and how they got into programming, if they were on the Mac, it seems like HyperCard or ResEdit were sort of the two doorways into programming. It's neat in that both of them start you off playing with the tangible parts of the software, the GUI parts of it, rather than the command line, say, that you would run into if you were on the on the DOS side of things. That would be your first sort of encounter with a with a programmer interface. But on the Mac it was, you know, res edit for, like you said, editing sound assets or icons and that sort of thing. And in HyperCard, of course, it's it's very visual. So Exactly. And when I think back about my own early days of programming, one of the things that I often, one of the things that I, I reflect on fondly is the the difference between what I imagined programming was before I learned for real what programming was like. And I'm, I'm wondering, I want to start asking this question. You're the first person I've asked this question to, but I think it's going to be one of my common things going forward. Do you remember anything about what you imagined programming was going to be like before you learned? And, and do you remember how that changed or what it was like as you sort of came into really understanding what programming is? Yeah, I do. I remember my dad said that computers are all just ones and zeros. And I asked him, I mean, how do they show numbers higher than than one? if that's the case. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and so I had some vague notion that it would, that code would somehow get turned into ones and zeros. But that seemed, I almost didn't believe that because it seemed far-fetched that you could encode everything uh, in, in as long numbers. Um, uh, so that was my initial idea. Um, but I think actually once I started building programs, you know, essentially tutorials that were in this in these books, then I think a new mental model just probably completely eclipsed whatever had been there before because I could almost figure it out empirically. It's like, oh, when you type in this bit of code, then this window appears on the screen or something like that. So it, I, I, I don't think I kind of built my new mental model on the, on the, on the ashes of, the, of any previous ones. My favorite mental, like pre-programming mental model that I've heard that I wish I'd had is that somebody uh, really liked Super Nintendo games and so they'd they'd think, well, the images are quite big on my TV, but the cartridge is only like, you know, four inches long by maybe three inches high. So how, do they sort of fold up the pictures inside it? Because, they, they, you know, if you, the, the, the images are bigger than they could possibly fit inside the cartridge. So how does that work? And I think that's like a lot, a lot more... I really like that because it's so physical... And in many ways, makes more sense than than whatever crazy ones and zeros I had in my head. Yeah, whatever poisoned sand and all of that that it <laughs> literally is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's fantastic. You were fourteen when you first picked up those books, or, or thereabouts, and and sort of um, I imagine continued playing with programming. Um, what was it about programming that hooked you, and how did that kind of nurture and develop as you went forward? Yeah, I I wrote a series of small desktop applications for the Mac, starting out from tutorials and then kind of making my own things. So I, I remember I wrote a thing that would you could type in an error code that the Mac showed you and it would tell you what it meant. Um, and I wrote a kind of very, very simple word processor 
um, where you could, it was just like a notes app, but you could type into it and save stuff. Uh, so I kind of wrote little programs like that. And then I, I'd never really liked m- maths very much. Um, though I was okay at it, but I just didn't really like it that much. And I thought that serious programming would require lots of maths, which, um, so I sort of assumed that I would not want to do computer science at university. And so I was thinking about doing something else. Um, and then just through luck, my uncle, uh, my uncle David, he, um, put me in touch with, he he was a, a professor at Oxford and he put me in touch with a professor of computer science who was also Oxford to kind of just have a have a talk about you know what my aspirations were and this professor um, uh, said oh you know maths it can be part of computer science but um, it's not you don't need to spend your whole time doing maths in order to enjoy programming and enjoy computer science and so genuinely because of that conversation I decided to do computer science which so I'm so sort of very grateful to that person. Um, because I, I really don't think I would have done it unless I'd kind of been disabused of, of that of that um, uh, notion about maths being integral to, to, to programming. I love moments like that where you can, and they tend to be frequent at around that age where you're sort of, you know, forced to decide perhaps for the first time in a big way what you want to do with your life. You know, it was this conversation with this person that put me on the, on the path that I'm on. There's, there's something kind of special about that. And I'm curious because you you mentioned it just very briefly in passing. Do you do you know what you would have done if you hadn't studied computer science? What you would have studied instead? Yeah, I think I would have done um, English most likely. That would have been a bit weird because by that point I would have been doing A levels and I did maths and physics and geography. So that would have been a bit of a bit of a jump to get over to English. But I think maybe possible, just because I you know really like artsy stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some outside chance that I would have done, you know, structural engineering instead. But again, I I, I think that was probably just a, a kid thing that I was interested in. And um, those two feel like the salient ones, the, the arts and, 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 and programming, basically. And of course, structural engineering, you're going to have a lot of math in that <laughs> yeah. one. At least that's my, my impression as an outsider. Mine too, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to uh, jump ahead a few years and ask about this mostly for my own personal curiosity. So I'm going to try to resist the urge to sort of uh, jump up and down too much with fanboyish excitement. But uh, you eventually went to work at Ableton. And I'm personally really excited about Ableton because I, I will be using Ableton Live to edit this podcast. Um, I think that the, the things that they have in their user interface, um, especially for some of the uh, sound processing plugins that you can use uh, devices. That's what they're called. The little sound editing devices like their equalizer, the parametric equalizer and that sort of thing. I think some of the UI work that is in there is uh, just absolutely phenomenal. And so I'm curious to hear uh, what what it was like to work at Ableton, what you worked on while you were there, um, what that whole uh, chapter of your life was about. When I was there, it was, it was, we were about 100 people, um, so it was in 2010, 2011. Um, and I worked on the... Um, they essentially had an internal team that, that built their website and their shop, and so I was on that team, writing Python mostly. Um, and so we built a, 
a bunch of the shop basically that 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 you used to buy Ableton, and then a fair amount of the sort of stuff that built documentation and things like that. They've since changed their website, and obviously it's been like ten years, so it's there've been a lot of changes. But um, uh, so we built that that kind of stuff, um, and to work there was very special because I think pretty much everyone who was there really loved Ableton Live and 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 you either used it or cared about it in some way and so it felt great to work at a place where everyone's excited about it and there were also lots of people who were essentially professional musicians who maybe had a kind of part-time or second second job at Ableton you know maybe to make some extra cash or whatever and so there was just tons of music people around as well and that was really exciting too so it just felt like there was a a real culture of caring about what what the company was was making and the other thing that stayed with me was how uh, so i kind of only observed the development of the product itself kind of uh, sort of one step removed because i didn't work on it directly but it felt like the people who worked on live itself were so careful about adding things to the product and thinking very carefully about how it should work and making sure it was extremely robust because obviously it's a it's a live music tool and so you don't want it to crash um and uh just this sense of carefulness that i think married with what felt to me you know i think is still kind of next level like you say ui design um sort of really put into me so kind of some deep core of like you can be careful and also innovative at the same time um which i think is something that is not an, those two ideas don't often go together um and i think ableton proved that it's that it's possible i mean they've i think we live 8 was the most recent version that had come out so that was in 2010 when i joined and then um it's 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 you know it, there have not been too many more versions since then which i think is in many ways a good thing because it just kind of this very careful taking making sure what they're building is the right thing i think is really cool mm-hmm. that's uh that's good to hear because that kind of lines up with my experience as somebody who has used live um both in a, a sort of a hobbyist capacity for things like editing this podcast and as a very serious professional tool as part of live performance and and uh, as part of a as part of my job um and it's it's it definitely does feel like software that is built with a great attention to stability and performance and robustness, but also on the design side, like you sort of identified, like it, um, I've been using it since version five, which I think would have been in 2004, 2005, somewhere in there, I started using it. And since then, things still work in the same way that they did back then. And they've added a tremendous amount of capability and power and, and, and new features to the program, but they've done it in a way that, to me, never really broke my workflows, never really broke my expectations. Or if they did change something that required me to slightly adjust how I work, it, it was something that made sense. It was something that was not a, you know, not a complete... Uh, departure from what I was used to. It was sort of um, like a slight augmentation um, or, an, or an additional thing um, just to, to cope with the the greatly expanded scope that the product has had in that time. And that 
that's very interesting to me, um, like you said, in that it sort of proves that it's possible to do this. And I think that that's a, that's a really uh, important thing to reflect on in the face of, and I'll just pick on one example, um, companies like Apple who are beloved for their design prowess, but are also notorious for breaking people's workflows or for doing a complete reinvention of something when perhaps that's not necessary. And so it's nice to have these counterexamples of things that are exquisitely designed, but that are also very respectful of the, of the uh, expectations of their, of their longtime users and uh, do a very, very good job of, of leveraging familiarity against the need to kind of, um, the need to, and I, I, I guess one, one reason why perhaps Apple does what they do or other companies do what they do in that sort of reinvention when it's bad kind of way is because there's that pressure to constantly be adding new capabilities so that you can justify charging for upgrades. And I think, um, yeah, Ableton are, are a great example of a company that's found a way to keep working on their product and keep growing and, and building something without having to force people into an upgrade cycle that is not beneficial. Well, one example that comes to mind is, um, uh, I've not used this feature, so but I believe it came in, in Live 9 where you can essentially turn an audio or, or some audio into MIDI, so kind of a, a wave back into MIDI. And I believe that came in Live 9. And that, that, when I was at the company, that feature was being talked about. Um, and I think that was, to me, emblematic that they said, yeah, this is going to be Live 9, so probably in like three years' time. Um, <laughs> and that's just like, it's very cool, I think. It's like, okay, we've got this cool feature. It's going to take a while. Um, we're looking that far ahead. And there's no, there's, it's not like, you know, they're sort of just saying, oh, it's out when it's out. But it's like, there's no rush. It's just going to make uh, some things better in certain ways. Um, and it takes however long it takes to, to, to add. And so exactly like you say, I think it's an example of just, we only add things when they make it better, not, to, not for some release cycle or to justify charging for an upgrade. I think it's super powerful. Mm -hmm. So... Now I'm going to start getting into some of the projects that you've made, um, and you have made a lot of projects. Uh, so there's, you know, a, a real banquet of choices here for things we could talk about. And I want to start by talking about Isla, which is a um, a programming language that you made specifically for young kids, and it's um it's something that you intended to be a good first language. So somebody's first encounter with programming. Um, would be this language. And uh, in uh, one of the talks that you gave about it, I think it was in one of the talks, um, you mentioned that it would be a language that kids would very likely outgrow as they continued learning to program. That if they stuck with programming, that Isla would sort of fade in relevance and they might move on to something else. And I was wondering if there were aspects of this language that you specifically designed with that in mind, that you specifically designed to encourage kids to outgrow it. Because that's a really interesting design constraint if that was something that was, uh, that you that you made intentional in any way. And so I'm wondering if that's um, what you might have done to accomplish that. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the explicit thing that I did to, to, to aim for that was to not try and make it something that a child or anyone could grow with. Um, and so, 
I think of ILO as essentially a data definition language in the sense that you write code that defines data structures, really. So you can say something like, if you're effectively, you can create an object, you can add attributes with values to that object, um, you can create lists of, of objects and so on. And that's, that's about it. So you're just sort of defining data when you write the code. Um, and so by definition, it's not going to be um, a language that you can do that much with. And I think the discipline I put on myself was to say, that's okay. Um, I want simplicity and accessibility to be the most important thing. And so I not try, essentially not forcing myself to make it a powerful language lets me double down on the simplicity um, and make things as, as easy as possible. Um, and the the idea behind Isla in the end was that the, the, the kid would write some code which defined um, some data. So let's say they would create an object called with a, like a, I don't know, it had the name Saturn and it had um, an X attribute and a Y attribute that was set to some numbers. Um, and then it had like a color attribute or something like that. So just an object with those four attributes. And then they might define another objects along similar lines called Mars or something, and then another one called Venus, let's say. Um, and they'd put them in a list, and then that, that would be where things ended for the kid um, in terms of their input. But um, one would be able to layer on uh, environments that would use that data to do something interesting. So in that case, it was to create a little planetary simulation where um, it would use you know maybe the size of the planet that you could also define um, to define the mass of the planet, and then the starting positions would be the X and the Y of each of those objects. And then it would just kind of make them orbit a sun that they could add as well and stuff. And so um, the idea is that the kid would define some cool pieces of data, and then uh, a more advanced programmer would be able to set up the environment that would use that data to do something that was hopefully interesting. And so to try and get, hopefully, a somewhat interesting result out of not too much difficult code. Um, so that was sort of the, the goal. Uh, I think there were a lot of problems with all of that <laughs> that I'm uh, happy to talk about if that's interesting or, or, or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I would love to hear what you, what you see as the problems with this approach. Yeah. Um, the, f the first problem, I think, is that uh, with a number of kind of you know, I don't know, you could call them like dynamic medium projects or future of programming projects or anything that's trying to change the way that people program computers, basically. A number of those projects that I've, that I've, that I've done um, have a sort of split focus between the tool that you're building and your objectives for what that does and then another objective around... Um, what you want to do for yourself as the as the creator. So, for example, Isla was the first programming language that I'd ever implemented a compiler for, um, and so part of my goal was just to implement a compiler for the first time. So that kind of split focus meant that I think I did not pay as much attention to the quality of the language, and if even having a language was the right move, as I could have done. So, for example. You know, a few people that I know used Isla with their kids and tried it out, but, you know, as far as I know beyond that, it, it's, it's got zero kid users, basically, and stuff. And so, and I, I part, 
partly I think that's because the design of the language and the environments itself themselves were compromised by my own kind of separate goals for writing a compiler, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, and and to me, it seems sort of inevitable that um, that if you're if you kind of flip the way of thinking of it on its head, instead of thinking of it as this is going to be a transformative programming environment and I need to learn some things in order to build that, um, if you instead think of it as I want to build transformative programming environments, but to do that, you know, one requires practice just like they do with anything, um, then it, it seems sort of inevitable that uh, that you're going to end up with that split focus um, and so was was the problem then that you went into it thinking that it wasn't like a like a, a primarily a learning project that it was instead primarily something that was meant to sort of have a life of its own? Yeah, I think I was a bit um, blind to it uh, that I had this split focus between my own goals of building a writing compiler and the goals of creating a language that would actually be fun or educational or useful for, for, for children to use. Um, and I think I've noticed that as a common failure mode inside the projects that I've built along those lines. So I did another one called Code Lauren that, that I think suffered the same fate. Um, I think the where it's... I, I definitely... I think you're absolutely right that it's like, okay, in order to do something, you know, like build a language for children then you may need to learn some stuff and that's that's just part of part of what you need to do and that's fine and I think that's absolutely right I think the where it gets trickier uh, certainly in my experience is that um, the the focus on the what of, of what you're building so you know that that kind of secondary goal of oh I want to write a compiler constrains one to that as the solution for helping children get into programming or whatever, it's like oh, there there are, there could be other ways that are better um, for helping children uh, write their first code. But the the, the 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 solution has now been presupposed as a compiler, and so I think that kind of thinking inside the box is is sometimes a, a dangerous consequence of these kind of this kind of split focus. That's a hundred percent something that I think that I have to deal with because um, I'm, you know, I'm building my own futuristic programming projects and they are visual languages because that's the area that is my obsession. And uh, would I write a futuristic programming project that is a compiler? Uh, heck no, because <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, for one, I'm scared of compilers and of uh, that sort of whole uh, can of worms as I see it. Um, but it's just not something that's interesting to me. And so what I'm curious is now that you've, you've done these projects, um, Isla and Code Lauren, which we will talk about in a bit, and you've sort of discovered that that's an affliction that you have where you are constrained to inside the box thinking based on what your presupposed solution to the, the broader problem is. What, what advice do you have for surely the many people out there who will hear this, who are also perhaps trapped in that box and may not yet have realized that that is something that is constraining their thinking? What have you come to having gone through that reflection? I think the, the, the first thing is that it, all of that, or Isla would have been absolutely fine if I was a kid too, 
which obviously is, is hard to imagine, but um, because I would be my own user. And so I think exactly what you're talking about with Hest, my understanding is that you are building this to use yourself and to use as part of your work. And so I think that is a really good way to avoid this this failure mode that I've talked about. Um, because then, you know, you can't kind of fool yourself um, by saying like, oh, some other people who, you know, who, who are not me, but some other people will, will get value out of this. Uh, because you can tell yourself, obviously, if you're not getting value out of it, if you've built it for yourself. Um, the second piece uh, that I think I've found helpful more recently is it took me a long... I don't know if I've totally shaken it yet, actually, but it's taking me a long time to shake off this idea that building software requires writing code. Um, and so I think I, in the past I've ignored ways of building software that aren't primarily writing code because they seem like, oh, that's never going to be powerful enough or that's always just going to be a toy. Um, and I feel like I'm more open in my mind to tools like that that maybe in the past I would have looked down on as not powerful enough. And so... Uh, the other thing that I've taken away from this, I think, is is is, is trying to not dismiss things just because uh, they're not um, going after a particular goal in the same way that the same way that I am. So to give a concrete example, something like Game Maker, which I've been completely obsessed with recently, um, it's a kind of an IDE for making two D games, um, and it's been used by uh, to make some very cool commercial games like. Nuclear Throne is one, or the first version of Spelunky. Our Hyperlight Drifter is a favorite of mine. Right, exactly, yeah, exact, fantastic. Um, and so it's definitely serious um, and not just a toy. Um, and it also requires some code for, for things, for sure, but uh, it also does a lot of work to avoid requiring code in for many things. Um, and so I think I've just tried to make myself more and more open to if you like, to put it in sort of Stuart Brand terms, like low-road tools like that, that, that maybe would have been seen as, 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 as inconsequential in the past, to, to me at any rate. And actually, one of my later questions, uh, I think it's going to dovetail really nicely with what you've just said, um, because I'm going to ask a little bit about your thoughts on text code and, and other more visual systems, because there are some other things that you've said that I think... Uh, uh, hint that you might have some thoughts about that or some thoughts that might have changed over time. So that's something that I'm going to actually come back to in a bit. But uh, still on the topic of uh, Isla, you gave a talk at JSConf in 2012 and uh, you said the, the following, and I'm just going to read it verbatim just because I, I found it really charming. You said, there's this notion of indirection, which is the reason that I think programming is so fun. I type in something to the computer here, and then something happens over there. And in between, there's this magic, and that magic is fun. And later, you expand on that by saying it's like setting up a long line of dominoes, and then you flick one, and you watch the rest of them fall. And depending on how you interpret, or how one were to interpret that, it might be seen as going against the conventional wisdom that uh, indirection, especially in user interfaces, is a bad thing. 
and that's sort of where you know Brett Victor made a lot of uh, a lot of great uh, points about direct manipulation uh, being good for some things in some cases because of that removal of indirection. And so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on indirection? And maybe those have changed in the time since 2012. Granted, a long time ago, um, but that that sort of indirection being one of the places where fun can come in. Do you see the the issue there with that that it might cause for some people? Or how do, how do you how do you wrestle with indirection? What do you think about indirection? I think I still I still think that's true. Um, it's a really interesting idea about how actually direct control and mastery of, of and, and directness um, of, of things is, is, is a fun feeling too. I think that's absolutely right. Um, if there's any kind of delay on when you do an input to seeing the result, that can be very disempowering and, and sort of energy sapping, I think. Um, I think I, I, I would add on to the idea of indirection that, that maybe... Now I would think about it as power or leverage, where you do a thing over here and you see an effect over there, which gives you a sense of, like I say, kind of power or control or mastery or leverage, kind of something around those words, where you can have an effect that's, that's at a distance. And so I think I can imagine this being a similar thing to if you ran a company and kind of the feeling that you might get of knowing that there were people who were working on stuff and building it and you weren't even aware of it and then they show and it's like wow that just happened because of the system that I set in place or whatever that's really cool and I think that might be a similar sense of fun um, and so I think to, to boil it down you know writing a line of code and then seeing a window pop up on screen feels similar where it's like oh I did this thing that, that felt reasonably small to do, and then this big thing comes out of it. It's like a, a sense, a strong sense of leverage coming out of it. Um, and so I still think that's why I find programming fun. Um, and I think emergence factors in here as well, where you know I've heard game designers talk about seeing players do things in their games that they never would have anticipated and how cool that is. And it's like, yeah, I created a system or a smaller thing and this these these extra consequences came out of it. That's so cool. Because, it, again, it's like that sense of um, indirection plus power. Um, and, I, and I think also possibly magic. You know, thinking of a magic trick feels related as well, where it's like, if you can see that the person kind of, you know, had the ball in their other hand the whole time or whatever, it's like, that's not magic. That's just, you just see there's a directness there. Whereas if somehow the, the ball appears to have flown between from one hand to the other, or the, or the man appears to have uh, jumped from one box to another or something, that's like, wow, there's something literally supernatural about that that feels powerful and, and, and sort of almost awe-inspiring, I guess. So listening through that thinking, I was holding in my mind the whole time um, that it, this might be one of those cases where we're using one word in two different notions and that that's probably worth you know disentangling them somewhat that the 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 point you made very early on about you know latency not being good and about certain kinds of indirection where it's 
it's sort of this artificial limitation being imposed on your expressivity, that's no good. But there's this other way of seeing indirection where it's that leverage that that is good. And maybe those are two separate notions that are that are sort of unfortunately tied together with one word. But then right at the end, you start talking about this magic of, um, you know, not wanting to see the ball go from, you know, one hand to the other in, of, of the magician. Um, and 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 so that to me that's that's weird because that is um <laughs> one of the things that are that you know people like you and me who are doing these sort of futuristic e-programming projects one of the things that we often will wrestle with is trying to reveal the magic that is going on behind the compiler or behind the the uh, the the evaluation of the language and trying to surface that and show it to the programmer as a way of giving them leverage and it's sort of like all of a sudden there's a there's a a cost to doing that if and i completely agree with you i think that that especially when you're first encountering programming um that that you know that feeling of i i typed uh something into the command line I'll, I'll tell a story here when i was first learning to uh to make websites with rails um uh and and javascript and that sort of thing i i was coming out of a world of flash um because i you know my i started with hypercard and then i graduated into flash and that was sort of my main programming environment for for many 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 years and so then when flash started dying uh, and I switched over to programming on the web. This was sort of in the the beginning of the you know node modules is a it has the mass of a black hole era, and so <laughs> there was this new tool at the time called Yeoman, and you'd you'd install it with Brew, and that's cool. I'm good with that. And you'd type Yo, you know, new Angular or whatever it is to invoke it, and it has this recipe where it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to bootstrap a new little Angular project and uh, download all the node dependencies. And so I type this command in. And it prints out something like 10,000 lines of uh, output in my console saying installing this, installing this, installing this. And I have this panic attack and I'm ripping my hair out <laughs> thinking, what the hell have I just done to my computer? I'm installing tens of thousands of things. This can't be right. Where are they all going? Um, you know, are they being scattered all over my hard drive? Am I going to have to go dig into my library folder and find where they all went and clean them up? Thinking that all of those things were each like their own, you know, traditional Mac application where they have the application lives in one folder and its data lives in another folder and it's got some secret data over here and there's some cache there. And I'm thinking, I've just made this colossal mess. How does anybody work with this? How is this seen as a, you know, hey, we make it easy to get started with your first project kind of tool that all these people are uh, are are encouraging. And so it's it's that that same feeling of I just do this little tiny thing, and there's this huge ex this this flurry of activity that happens as a result. And that's something where you know I totally see the 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 way that that can be a positive thing when you are first learning if it's not you know something unexpected and bad as it was in my case I, i've had the opposite experience too where it's very delightful but it's something that our that our tools that we're building are trying to lessen and so i wonder if that's one of those things where we might have to um might have to put that as one of our benchmarks that we hold dear when we're designing these tools, thinking about, you know, if if we do get to the point where 
a lot of the magic is dispelled and a lot of the inner workings are surfaced in a way that doesn't make them seem intimidating in their complexity, maybe that loss of magic will be something that is felt by people. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think it's, I, I really like the um, kind of teasing apart of the, these two ideas of uh, indirection and leverage. Um, uh, and I think you're absolutely right that, that the more one understands something that one is possible that that would lead to a kind of mundaneness, a feeling of mundaneness about it. Um, I think it's exactly what you said that, that there's something about leverage which is which is putting in a small amount of something and getting a, 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 a an impressive result as a, as a, 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 that comes out of it. So, um, and I think that's about just. Maybe it's about one's preconceptions of what's impressive and what's not. So, for example, if you're, a, you know, when I was a kid and I could write a few lines of code to create a window on my Mac that was just like the windows that, you know, real cool official programs could create, then I think that's it's an impressive result from 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 something that I knew how to do. And so I think that gives a, a sense of leverage or power or, or fun or whatever. Um, on the other hand, I think I, I really love this idea. That there's almost a diametric opposite, which is that you know that sometimes I find if I've dived into a complex system or what seems like a complex system, and and learnt how it works in detail. So, for example, I did this with Git, um, and learnt how it works in detail. That actually also brings a similar sense of kind of I don't know, power and, and, and ability and sort of competence or whatever, even though you actually now know all the details of how it works. And so I think it's maybe it's it's sort of it's not so much about the method that you use to get there, it's just more about, wow, I can do this thing that seemed very impressive before I knew how to do it. And that, you know, makes me feel like a sense of fun or a sense of ownership or whatever over my over my thing and and that might just be just a few lines of code that produces a window or it might be you know a deep dive into i don't know kind of you know learning how git works in in detail um but the, the, a similar feeling comes out of it um and because i think with the magic trick analogy it's actually you don't know how it works and that's sort of the point um but that's someone else who's doing that magic trick. It's 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 not you. And so I think if we if we limit it to just okay, well, what can if we're focusing on the things that one can do oneself, this sense of power can come from from like exactly like you say, both those things: a sense of leverage or a sense of deep connection and understanding. This reminds me a bit of um, uh, Ted Nelson's Zine Computer Lib slash Dream Machines where he sort of talks about this this like priesthood of programmers who sort of guard their secret uh, spells that they can invoke upon the computer <laughs> and how that sort of um, that's uh, detrimental to progress as society and, and incorporating computers into our lives. Um, and that, you know, the magician keeping the magic secret works when the relationship is between the magician and an audience. But when you are a magician yourself and you want to learn a new trick, I think that the learning how the trick is done in that context still brings with it that sense of fun 
um, rather than the sense of disappointment that might come from an audience member knowing that the trick is actually mundane, that the sort of the different objectives in each case help you have a positive relationship instead of a negative one when it comes to dispelling how the magic is done. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing that made me think of is perhaps if dispelling the magic that is going on inside the computer is something that that were to, you know, take the fun away to make it mundane, maybe that could be addressed and this is where we get into like I think that this is the case, and I know that other people do not think that this is the case, <laughs> um, you could probably address that by changing the aesthetics of your programming interface or the aesthetics of your uh, relationship with the computer in that if there's some mundanity there, maybe that mundanity just comes as a result of you running into like a barrier where now your experience is mitigated by things that are frustrations rather than things that are joyful. So for example, if you take away some of that magic of, you know, I type in one command and um, let's say in my case, you know, I ran yo, whatever to install and it, it, it installed thousands of things. If you, if you take away that, that, that magical nature of it and perhaps replace it with, and this is a totally contrived example, but if I had to install those things manually one at a time, or if I had to go and, you know, populate my package.json and then, you know, run NPM to install it or something like that. Like if, if it becomes a little bit more manual and that dispels it, then my, my experience with it is mediated by the fact that I'm now just waiting on the computer to do some work. Like there's some latency here and that's the part that governs my experience where if it was, you know, instantaneous or effortless, or if it were, more tactily interesting, that's kind of the bent I'm on, um, or if it were, were more visually interesting, then that might still keep the element of fun even after the, the magic has been taken away. Because the thing that's mundane probably isn't the absence of magic. It's probably just whatever is behind the, the surface of the magic, like a ball going from one hand to the other is mundane until you're juggling. And then it's, you know, exciting. And, and much the same way, a lot of the maybe the plumbing of data that we do in programming is mundane until you dress it up with graphics and sound effects and challenges and then it's a video game and so it's the sort of thing that i feel like like this this idea that the magic is fun and that behind the magic is mundanity i, I really like that i think that that's a really fruitful line of thinking and exploring this space i think that's super cool This episode, like all the previous episodes you've enjoyed so far, has a transcript, which you can find at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 50. Dun, 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 dun. We've made it to 50 episodes, everybody. How about that? That's uh, that's pretty cool. Though, of course, um, huge kudos, as always, to Steve Krauss for starting the community and starting this podcast off and and sort of taking it right up to the, the goal line. I don't know. I'm not a sports person. Yeah, 50 episodes. That's awesome. Uh, here's to uh, 500,000 more. 
And for all of those 500,000 episodes, hopefully, fingers crossed, there will be a transcript, and that transcript is brought to you by Replit, an online REPL that you can pull up in your browser and pick from a huge list of languages and now frameworks for making games and tools for launching websites and apps, and they are just absolutely crushing it. I'm subscribed to their newsletter, and it seems like you know every week or two they're bringing out some new innovative thing that they're doing, really building up this very comprehensive, very robust platform for doing software development in a very broad sense. And so I, uh, I always do this, but if you're tuning in for the first time, I encourage you to go take a look at Replit. Um, when they first started sponsoring the transcript, they were hiring. I'm sure they're probably still hiring. So if you are looking for a really interesting place to work on a particular vision for the future of coding that involves bringing the tools that we all use to do our software development to everyone, regardless of whether they have the expertise to, you know, get into the trenches and, and set up all the stuff on the terminal and all their dependencies and manage all that hell, or whether they want to just go straight to something like Replit and having all of that taken care of and just firing up instantly a REPL for whatever tool set they want to be working with. Check them out and see what they can do for whatever you're working on for your investigations into the future of programming. So thank you to Replit for sponsoring the transcript and helping bring us the future of coding. I kind of like that tagline. Uh, I'm going to do that on all the sponsor reads. Uh, it's not something that's in the ad copy uh, or anything like that. I just like to try and find these little mimetic things I can work in. So uh, uh, if you find it uh, infuriating, just know uh, direct all hostile feelings towards me <laughs> and not towards Replit or anybody else. They're not making me say this stuff. I'm 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 the one doing that. All right, and uh, and now back to the interview. So after Isla, you later made a project called Code Lauren, which we've mentioned a couple of times so far. And Code Lauren is a game programming environment for beginners. And if I get this explanation wrong, uh, feel free to jump in and say, no, 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 that's not right. But um, it's a text editor, and you can type in some code. The code that you're typing in, maybe it does some graphics, like making shapes or that sort of thing. And the graphics will be rendered right into the background of the text editor. And so you've got your text code and your graphics right there in the same space. And am I correct that the the, the language that is in Code Lauren, is that a language you also created? It is, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I didn't recognize the syntax, and I, I wasn't sure if it was something obscure or something that I just haven't seen. Uh, and did you build the language and the environment together at the same time? Yeah, I did. Yeah, they, they kind of co-evolved. Co and that's, that's kind of what I'm curious about, and that's what I'm hoping you'll talk about, is sort of what was the thinking behind the project? What was it like creating a language and its editor, or the other way around, an editor and its language at the same time? How did that all go? Yeah, um, the background is that th this is another example of, of somewhat confused goals where it's supposed to be definitely a considerably more powerful environment than, than Isla was, but also supposed to be more accessible than something just like plain JavaScript or even JavaScript with like a graphics library like processing JS or something like that. Um, so so that was the kind of the, the, the goal on the one side was uh, more accessible language and environment 
the goal on the other side that I think ended up dominating was that I wanted to write a virtual machine to kind of be the foundation of the of the compiler that 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 took the code and then and then the way that the code should be run. Um, and so that was a sort of somewhat auxiliary confused goal. Um, so th- those two things competed with each other a bit. So to take an example, um, I wanted to have a language that sort of got rid as, of as much of the incidental complexity as possible. Um, so way examples of that are um, uh, you could, because I knew that it would be essentially used for writing uh, code that would produce animations or games, then I knew there was going to be an event loop whizzing around for the whole life of the program. And so I made that very easy. So you could just type forever and then some braces and then whatever was inside the braces would be would be the tick of, the, of that event loop. Um, and so that was, you know, something that was pretty simple to do for the user. So that was cool. Um, uh, on the other hand, I wanted to write a VM that would let you run your code in reverse. Basically, it's like a, a technical flex, to, to be honest with you. Um, because uh, it would seem impressive, I suppose. Um, and so that those two things don't go very well together because, so you, yeah, I hit the goal of, yes, you can run your code step by step, kind of like a you know, step debugger um, forward, and you can also do it backwards. But a reverse debugger actually doesn't make that much sense for something that is an event loop that's going around, you know, maybe 60 times a second at full speed, um, because you're just constantly clicking back, 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 like that. And it, you, so, you know, you, you would click back 20 times um, and you would be just, you know, a fraction of a second back in, in this run of the program. So it was very difficult to find the bit that you were interested in getting back to. And so these two goals, like I say, kind of competed with each other a bit. Um, and uh, I think if I was uh, taking a more honest run at this sort of thing, I would have made something that was much closer, or at least I, I, I wouldn't have been able to make something nearly as good, I don't think. But um, I would have been aiming at something that was focused on this person wants to make a game or they want to make an animation. Uh, what does that tell me about how the tool should work? Whereas, like I say, um, the, the, the focus was more like, I want to create a VM and I want to that runs a programming language um, in the browser. And so let me let that mostly dictate things. I think the things that I did discover that seemed helpful were I started to kind of graft on a, a debugging uh, debugging help for the user. So um, some things along the lines of, of, of what Brett Victor has worked on for a while, you know, around learnable programming. So, for example, you know, there would be help on what arguments, functions that you were going to call took, for example. Um, there would be reasonably helpful error messages when you got syntax errors, um, uh, sort of th- things like that. And, and another thing that I found that I think was helpful was having one way to do everything uh, rather than multiple ways, kind of reduced complexity for users. And so um, just having one way to call a function, for example, or having the whole thing be... Um, oh, what was another example? Having one way to instantiate variables. So just, just kind of simple stuff like that. That's like, why put the extra complexity on the user? 
Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure on the on the VM and the language as well. Like there's sort of a win-win there, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. That that's absolutely right. I have a, a direction that I want to go with looking at Code Lauren, but before we, we go in that direction, I just wanted to see if there was anything else about it that you wanted to um reflect on, just because the direction I'm gonna take it is in is quite a different direction. <laughs> yeah, I think um I think this this could have been something that if I'd focused it more on what I needed to make a game, which I started to do towards the end of it, it would have had been more successful because it could have been something that I would find useful, which would at least put me on a useful track. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of wish I'd doubled down more on making it something that was that was useful for me to to make games. And so I definitely took that away. That's interesting to me because of your most recent obsession, Game Maker. It seems like you, um, and you've also made games. That's something I haven't uh, incorporated into any of these questions, but you you also make games in addition to making tools for making games. And so before I, I take this in a different direction, I'm just curious if... Um, now that you've played with Game Maker and now that you've had that experience with Code Lauren, where you sort of realized, okay, the focus needs to perhaps be on um, dedicating the tool to a specific kind of, of project that a person wants to make or a certain kind of problem that they want to solve. Um, Code Lauren is a far more interesting tool than Game Maker in the way that it offers. Uh, very unconventional user interface capabilities, um, like the the ability to step forward and backward through the execution, the fact that the code editor and the graphics are right in the same window, in the same space. Um, is there anything that you're currently chewing on that you think might be, like if, if you could go into GameMaker and, and augment it in some way to to leverage some of these more interesting interface ideas, what might you do with something like GameMaker to give it more of that capability? Or what might you do with Code Lauren to bring it closer to uh, the sort of the domain-specific uh, utility that you get out of a tool like GameMaker? Yeah, I think uh, Code Lauren would be served well by getting a bunch of things out of code and into a GUI. And so so I think that's one of the huge strengths of GameMaker is that a bunch of a bunch of things you can just do in a GUI. So and I think it it, it goes down to even the most simple things that are just just so beautiful. It's like um, in GameMaker, you when you create a sprite, then the, the creators of GameMaker know that a sprite tends to have multiple frames, and so they give you a nice little painting editor that's you know 100% GUI to create your image, um, and then they let you add more frames to your sprite and and reorder them and things like that. And and then they, there's an implicit assumption that that when a sprite is displayed on screen, then it will have a current frame, and the default behavior is it for it to just cycle through those frames at top speed, which is all stuff that the user does not have to program. That you know, that there's an algorithm there clearly, but it's just been created with a combination of, of using a GUI to define that algorithm and also using some conventions to define that algorithm. And I think that's so powerful. So I think Code Lauren, if, if I went back to it, which I don't think I will, but if I did, I would try and lean as much as possible away from code and say, how much can the user do without writing any code? Um, I think 
areas where Game Maker would be, um, where I would I would love to see this version of Game Maker, and I, I think it sort of exists. There's because in Game Maker you 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 are always manipulating an artifact, you know whether that's code or images or or, or whatever, um, or you know essentially boxes and arrows kind of connected with wires. You're always manipulating an artifact that is not the final output. And I would love to see a version of Game Maker where you manipulate the game itself to create the game. And I, I believe there is a tool called Click and Play that is, is from like 25 years ago or something that takes this, this approach. So you essentially arrange some objects on a canvas and then to define how they work, you, you kind of can literally click and drag to define the motion of, of a particular sprite or something. So it's like, oh, I want this to move from here over to here. And then you, you that drag defines that movement. So you don't have to type write any code to do that. Or another example is you can like run your game and then when an, an event happens, like um, one object runs into another, then a little modal will pop up saying define what should happen in response to this collision and there's there's a number of events like that that it's sensitive to and so again you're doing it by manipulating the actual the actual output which i think is would be a really exciting idea i feel sure that they ran into l big limitations on how powerful that that can get but i think it would be very cool and it's it's something where one of the objections that people might surface when they encounter that idea is if you look at an environment like HyperCard sort of worked in this way, uh, Flash even worked in this way a little bit at one time with a feature called Behaviors. Um, you can have these environments where you have your your actual running game or system that you're building or playing with right there and you can work directly with it and and specify the behaviors that things should have right in that running environment um, but the environment is still it's not forcing you to only do things in terms of what exists in that running environment you're still able to you know when two things collide bring up a modal and in that modal there's a nice dedicated interface for resolving that one particular circumstance so it's not it's not necessarily like you have to give up on the uh, the sort of the indirect tools that we have available to us in in a in a system like Game Maker in order to get that world where you are working with the the actual running interface. I think that there that those two ways of working are very compatible, and that you could probably see an environment where you have um, both rather than just one or the other, which would be nice. Yeah, I I completely agree. I I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of I almost see it as. Um kind of popping up the right UI, the right editor at the right time. Um, and if that can stick within the direct manipulation uh, metaphor or the output metaphor, then that's great. But exactly like you say, it doesn't have to. And users could still totally understand what's going on. Um, I think that's something that working on Airtable has, has taught me, that the philosophy there is... I mean, I, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but, but certainly the philosophy that... That is is part is, people talk about you know not somewhat frequently inside the company mm. is this idea that of, of escape hatches where Airtable is a database that you can essentially directly manipulate and you're you're most of the time in fact you know ninety 
99% of the time you're not writing any code, you're just manipulating data in a database and, and defining uh, schema relationships between pieces of that data. Um, and then, But then sometimes you need to do something a bit more sophisticated. And so um, you can create something called an automation, which if you ever use Zapier, um, it's, it's somewhat similar where it's like forms-based programming. So you say, oh, uh, when a... Um, oh, let's say, when a record is created, then I want to update that record with these values or something like that. And you can do various other things like send email and so on. And so um, the automations interface is a little escape hatch that lets you either automate repetitive processes or it lets you do things automatically where you don't have to supervise them. So you could imagine that, you know, a process would run every every night at midnight or something like that. But so it's a little bit of extra complexity, but you're certainly not programming. Um, and actually you do that bit and then you get back to just doing normal Airtable, which is basically manipulating data. And then you can take those, you can imagine those escape hatches in a hierarchy where above that you have writing a little script, which you write in JavaScript, um, just to do that little thing that Airtable can't do, that it doesn't have that feature built in, you know, what, whatever that is, whether it's updating a set of records all at once or something like that. And again, it's a little escape hatch where if you can cope with writing that much code, or you can just find someone in, you know, kind of the, the small matter of programming style in your in your office who knows how to write code, then they can write that bit of code for you, and then you can get back into Airtable. And I think that is a super powerful idea that, um, to me, I think uh, that the opposite of it pervades work on future programming stuff where the, the sometimes I get the sense that there's this implicit assumption that's like, oh, well, if you can't do everything in whatever the new UI or programming paradigm is, then it's never going to be good enough. So you may as well just start and just do it all in code. I just think that's exactly the wrong way around. It's more like, okay, let's do 99% in this cool, much more accessible UI, and then let's have a little escape hatch way where somebody can take on the extra bit of complexity, solve their little problem, and then get back into the much nicer, much easier to use environment. And that's a lesson that I think, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to imagine here, maybe, uh, you know, if Andy Hertzfeld or somebody is in the audience, they can <laughs> reach out and, and fill me in. Um, but I imagine that that's something that um, that people often learn or that they arrive at. And, and I'm just going to I'm going to imagine a debate between people who are against escape hatches and are in favor of escape hatches and, and sort of hopefully arrive at, at the point in the middle that it seems like Airtable is at. And the argument against escape hatches that I hear, and I often am you know, guilty of making this argument, uh, is that they will give people a way to fall back on familiar habits or fall back on on the way that they've always done it before. So they will sort of bring forward whatever, you know, traditional experience they have with a programming environment into your new novel way of, of creating some kind of dynamic software system. And they'll just do the old thing if you give them an escape hatch into a world that looks, you know, more traditional. Um, and so the example, the reason I mentioned Andy Hertzfeld is the original Macintosh when it first shipped had a mouse, but it had no arrow keys because they 
on the Macintosh team. I don't know if this was specifically Steve Jobs or if it was somebody else there, but they they decided not to include arrow keys because that would encourage people to use the mouse as much as they could. That if you need to move the cursor, the right way to do it in the GUI paradigm is to grab your mouse and to find the spot where you want the cursor to go and to click. And so by taking away the arrow keys, they were forcing people to learn and become comfortable with the new paradigm. And not too many years later, they added arrow keys back to the keyboard because there's so many ways that arrow keys are useful beyond just the ability to move a cursor. If you are if you want to make you know a game or something like that and have directional movement, arrow keys are very natural for that. If you only want to move the cursor one or two spaces, arrow keys are really nice for that. And that, you know, even with the arrow keys, people still manage to get used to using the mouse and get used to using the GUI. And so it's, it's neat to hear that at Airtable, something like the automations system, um, which am I correct? That's what you worked on, yes? That's right, yeah. Cool. We're going to come back to that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the automation system is seen as an escape hatch from what is otherwise more like a, uh, like a database sort of spreadsheety style interface. And it's it's cool because when people in, in the future of coding world talk about escape hatches, I think what they pretty much universally are referring to is, and this is a little window that pops up a text editor where you can write JavaScript. And I love that idea of there being a hierarchy where it doesn't just have to be either the new thing or an escape hatch to the old thing where there can be intermediate escape hatches where you where you can sort of blur the line a little bit between the new world and the old world in a way that I think, because um, some part of me does really believe in the idea that if you give people a visual programming environment and give them a textual environment and they're used to textual programming, they're going to just jump into that textual environment as soon as they can, even if there's a way to do something better in the visual environment because they won't want to pay the, the cost of having to learn the new way to do it. Of course, counter argument to that is often there isn't a way to do it in the new environment or the way to do it in the new environment is very clunky and that's a whole other issue. Um, but this idea of having like gradations of escape hatches, I think is, is a really elegant way to, to solve that problem and to, and to find a really nice middle ground in that, in that sort of contentious space. Yeah, I, 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 that totally makes sense as that kind of, you know, the, 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 the not so good side of escape hatches. I think the, the distinction is that um, exactly like you say with the original Macintosh, they were imagining that most of their users would pe be people who'd only used command line uh, computers before, and so those old habits would be would be tough to break. But I think <laughs> sort of like the um, uh, when when things kind of break out and become popular, it's not because a bunch of people have, it's a massive overgeneralization, but in an example like this, I think this is probably true, but it's not because all of the people who used an old thing now are going to move over to this new thing, though some of them, of course, will. It's more that the gates have been opened to a whole new group of people. And so I think that um, the, the people who use Airtable, for example, are probably not going to uh, have those old habits necessarily always to fall back on, and so there's no danger of them 
um, just uh, doing it in the in the less efficient way with the script uh, if when they could be doing it in a more uh, sort of quick way w without a script. Um, and I think that the same is true for for something like Game Maker, which just opens up uh, the ability to make games to just so many more people that those escape hatches are, I think, about enabling someone to stay in the environment rather than having someone be able to just bring in a bunch of preconceptions and let them use this environment, if that makes sense. So, Because I think, again, taking Airtable as an example, the danger is, is that we provide a really nice database, but then they're like, this is great, but after you know a few days, there's just a bunch of stuff that I cannot do in 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 like vanilla Airtable, and so I'm very sadly have to go back to my internally written uh, tool that's all written in code by by the internal programming team or, or whatever it is, uh, because Airtable just will not grow with me, and these escape hatches give that ability to grow. And that is something that um, absolutely I think it it, it rings true. It, specifically because you 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 made a context around this which is that uh you are looking at things like the macintosh or like airtable which are reaching out to people who previously were not using a computer or previously were not using this sort of um you know dynamic software that they are new people coming into the tent and the thing that i my my own personal blindness is that i'm uh, paying way more attention to um, the problem of taking existing expert computer users and trying to advance the tooling that they have. And that's, that's sort of where my own biases creep into this, where I'm thinking about, you know, people bringing their, their own experiences forward is because there's that other side of, you know, there's, there's the one side of let's get more people into the tent. There's a lot of um, startups out there right now that are thinking about the next billion programmers and I think power to them. Um, but then there's the other side of it, which is uh, once once we have people in the tent or once we have the people who have been in the tent for a long time, what do we do with them? Because it's, you know, I think there's no argument here that the uh, that the existing tools that we have are just, you know, ripe for improvement in countless ways. And I think that sort of like what you identified with Airtable and, and having the, the escape hatches in a kind of a, a graduated fashion, it, it's sort of the onus is on us to make sure that no matter what experience people have and no matter what they're bringing into this, that we give them the, the capability to do whatever it is that they need to do. And so in the case of a beginner user, if they run into a limitation with the with Airtable and they need some programmability because entering things manually isn't cutting it anymore, you know, you have an automation feature for that. And if it is, you know, an expert programmer who's, you know, they're familiar with command lines and text languages and compilers and, and all of that, and you give them some kind of visual tool or some kind of, you know, novel debugger or something like that, that if you are worried about giving them the escape hatch to for them to fall back on, which is it's not just an argument that I made. I hear a lot of people um, make that you know objection to escape hatches. That just puts the pressure on you as the author of the tool to make whatever new contribution you're making very very good, and to make it you know you have to sort of do that objection handling, and that 
I think it might, it might almost be a, like a good benchmark to give yourself. I love benchmarks for this kind of stuff to say, I am going to put escape hatches in my thing. And that's going to force me to make my thing good enough so that people won't need to, or won't want to use those escape hatches. If they're bringing in existing familiarity with whatever world that escape hatch opens into that the new thing is so much better or so much more compelling that they won't necessarily need to fall back on old habits. And they only do fall back on old habits, perhaps, you know, in the case of an expert user for, for the sake of something like a foreign function interface or for the sake of, you know, using an existing library or something like that. I think Clojure did this really well. You're, you're a, a current former closureist. Uh, yeah, I haven't written any for a while, but, but written a reasonable amount. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, same boat. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and I think that, that philosophy that, uh, that closure had of, you know, we're going to make a, a novel language. Um, it's Lisp. So it's very familiar in that sense. Uh, it has these really nice new data structures that are very powerful, but it's going to be a hosted language. It's going to sit on top of Java. It's going to sit on top of JavaScript, but it's so good that you're not going to find yourself wanting to drop down to write stuff in raw Java or raw JavaScript when you could use Clojure. And I think that that, that approach to escape hatches is probably really, really powerful. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I really love the idea of the thing just has to be way better and then that is why people will switch to it because uh, that, that often seems to be the challenge with, as you say, the, the people in the tent in that, if they're switching, then they've definitely got some ingrained habits to, that, 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 that need to be battled with. And is that something when you're designing a, a feature like automations or when, or when other people at Airtable are working on the product, what sort of what's the balance of consideration between um, the people who are going to be coming to sort of, you know, reconfigurable software like Airtable for the first time? versus people who are already uh, familiar with programming or, or very, maybe, maybe very advanced users of something like Excel. How do you kind of split the, the, uh, the design space for those different, um, those different people coming to it? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, it's something that we think about a lot. Um, I think, first of all, that kind of, this is an oversimplification, but there tend to be users that set up Airtable bases who will, you know, need to design the schema. Maybe they'll be the ones who are more likely to create automations that run automated processes on the data in the base. Um, and then there are the people who essentially use the base as a tool um, to get their work done. So you could imagine that, let's say we're in, like it's a, uh, somebody who runs a hair salon, they've created an Airtable base to keep track of their customers um, and their hairstylists that they uh, employ and, you know, their, let's say, their appointments and, and all of that stuff. Probably their hair salon owner might be the one who set up the base and, and maintains it as a, as a piece of software. And then the stylists would be the ones who would who would actually use it to, um, to, to do their work, you know, to say that they've completed an appointment, for example, or, or maybe that they have some availability coming up in a couple of days and would be open to appointments or whatever. And so there's that kind of separation between making it accessible for both groups of people. Um, and we do that in, 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 a number of, in a number of ways. So, for example, you can 
create views that are focused on, so you've got a table of data, and then a view will show you only a subset of that data, so i.e. only a certain set of records or a certain set of fields or, or whatever. Um, so that that's sort of just one example of the way that um, a view might be something that a, a user of the base uses, but but to, which is a much simpler thing that they can interact with. Um, at the same time, um, there's also exactly like you say, people who have different levels of sophistication with building applications. And I would say that, um, I, I don't know in detail, but we are certainly targeting more people who are not programmers um, or who maybe only do a bit of programming um, and who are more sort of, uh, but still need to build software, basically. So I, I think it's a different... Not entirely different for sure, but 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 mostly different groups. So um, it might be it's quite often f people who've used spreadsheets to run their work in the past, and so there's a transition there. But I think because Airtable is better suited to the things that people are using spreadsheets for in these cases, which is basically to kind of keep track of. Um, data that has a schema, then that transition, there's a little bit of stuff to do there, but but basically it's it's not it's not that's not the tough problem. I think the toughest problem is helping people learn to create schemas that are powerful for them um, and helping people main, learn to maintain those schemas. And I think the other problem that certainly I think about a lot as a someone who works at Airtable is how you help someone understand what their processes actually are. So let's say to again to take the 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 head the example of a hairstylist. They might let's say they're keeping an appointment book at the moment and that's how they've been running their salon so far. And that's been working fine. Um, but if they started to build a base, then there's a big question of how do they translate their processes and which processes should they translate? is there a burden on Airtable to help them build better processes for running things? So, for example, let's say that so far, um, if they've had some, let's say they decide to open the salon on a Saturday or something like that, to um, see which of their stylists are going to be available to take appointments that day, maybe they just ring round um, each of their stylists and say, oh, hey, can you do Saturday? And then they figure out what the hours are and so on. And that's let's say that happens pretty frequently then would they even recognize that as a process that could be made better in Airtable? I don't know. It depends. Some would, some wouldn't. And, and maybe Airtable could help them recognize that and help them build a better, more efficient process that doesn't involve them ringing everyone up. So, so I think we're sort of trying to push on all of these different fronts at the same time, being accessible for people who want to build the base accessible for people who want to use the base and also helping people build better processes for their work. That is fascinating because that is an institutional example of what you ran into with Isla and Code Lauren. You know, you have this thing that you want to build and in going through it, you discover there's actually this problem outside of the scope of that thing that solving that problem out there would be helpful for the thing that I'm trying to build, or that the the problem is broader than what I've scoped my focus on. Yeah, that that that's exactly it. And and we have a number of tools for solving that problem. So one example is that 
for our larger customers, we have implementation specialists who are, uh, you know, super duper Airtable experts, and they will help the customer design the processes that they want to put into their base. Um, and so that's like, uh, you could imagine they're, they're, they're almost like a consultant who, who is helping someone produce better processes for their work. Um, then uh, within the tool itself, then um, we can help customers with things like having templates, for example, that target certain niches. So, for example, there's like a sales management template or there's like a, um, I don't know, you know, film shoot management template and things like that that obviously are ways for us to um, tacitly convey these sort of hopefully useful approaches to, to running this type of work. But it's, I mean, it, it really, like, it's so, I find it so fascinating because it, th these problems kind of run all the way up and down the stack that we need to help customers with. So all the way up to something quite high level like that, like modeling a 10-step process that involves a bunch of complex steps in Airtable, kind of right at the top level, all the way down to helping a customer understand that if they've created a table for January, like their January sales or something like that, it's probably not the right move to create another table for their February sales, that actually it's a better move to create a view that will filter down one, a single table of sales to show only January or only February or whatever. And so like right down to that sort of just kind of data modeling problems that we need, that we also try to help customers with. That's fun. Like I, I can imagine that, that building a product like Airtable and running into those kind of challenges are just really invigorating for the people whose job it is to try and, you know, design their way out of them. I, uh, it's great. Yeah, I think that's that's very cool. We have a second sponsor, which is fantastic because uh, there are costs associated with doing this show. And so having companies willing to uh, come forward and say, hey, if you read a thing or two about what we're doing, um, we'll give you a little bit of money. That is so helpful for me. So if you are with a company out there that wants to get your product or your idea or your job listing or whatever it is that you want to get out there in front of our audience. And our audience is comprised of, you know, researchers and people in industry and people in uh, academia, teachers and students, um, just a really, really big cross section of people, all of them sharing that common interest in exploring what we can do to really get ahead of where we are with our current state of programming and with our current culture and our current tools and all of that, reach out and let me know and we'll uh, put something together. One such company that came to me and said, hey, we're hiring, can you share that message with your audience, is a company called Glide. Glide's mission is to create a billion software developers by 2030 by making software dramatically easier to build. We all marvel at how successful spreadsheets have been at letting non-programmers build complex software, but spreadsheets are a terrible way to distribute software. They are an IDE, and the software built in it rolled into one, and you can't separate the two. So one way to think of Glide is as a spreadsheety programming model, but with a separable front-end and distribution mechanism. The way it works right now is that you pick a Google sheet, and this is the cool part, so... 
you know, this this thing that they're doing, this is pretty neat. Uh, the way it works right now is that you pick a Google Sheet and Glide builds a basic mobile app from the data in the spreadsheet. You can then go in and reconfigure it in many ways, including adding computations and building some pretty complex interactions. Then you click a button and you get a link or a QR code to distribute the app. The data in the app and in the spreadsheet will automatically keep in sync. So they've, they've taken the data that backs the app that you're going to build and and have just used Google Spreadsheets as that database interface, which is really neat because you'll, you know, I'm going totally off script now at this point. Wow. Um, you'll see these, you know, tools for working with SQL databases or, or NoSQL databases that, that give it a kind of a spreadsheet interface. And it's sort of like, you know, having to gradually build back up from having no interface to having an interface, whereas what Glide are doing are they're just saying, let's take an existing interface that is already really nice for working with database-like storage, that being, you know, the, the Google Sheets spreadsheet editor, which is quite robust, and let's just make that the database, which is so cool to me. For the Glide team, that's just the beginning. Glide needs to become much more powerful. Its declarative computation system has to support many more use cases without becoming yet another formula language. Its imperative actions don't even have a concept of loops yet or of transactions. Glide needs to integrate with tons of data sources and scale up to handle much more data. To do all that, Glide needs your help. If you're excited about making end-user software development a reality, go to glideapps.com jobs and apply to join the team. Thank you to Glide for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and helping bring us the future of coding. We talked a little bit about CodeLoren having a virtual machine that you built in addition to the language, in addition to the, the editor interface. There's, you know, a lot to this project. And that lets you have this uh, little feature up at the top um, that you talked about a little bit where there are little buttons for sort of rewind, step back, step forward, and play that let you, you know, incrementally move through the execution of the code that you've written. And at each step, when you step back or step forward, it highlights in a little box the fragment of the code that is currently being evaluated, say. And so you can sort of step through, like, uh, you know, if you're calling a function and doing something with the return value and you are stepping forward through that, it would first highlight each argument to the function and then it would highlight the function's name uh, to you know represent that the function's being looked up and then it would highlight um, does it highlight the whole the, the name and the arguments or just the parentheses for uh, invocation I can't remember it will highlight the function name itself to look up the definition of the function and then it'll finally highlight the parens when it actually gets invoked oh, okay so it's just the parens yeah and then after that, it will, you know, highlight wh whatever the return value is being assigned to. Um, it will go through assignment and that sort of thing. And, and then after, I think more recently than that, you made a game called Step. It's it's sort of similar. It's a little snippet of JavaScript. Um, and I will remind people that this is a game. So if I start swearing a whole bunch and, and, <laughs> and cursing and all of that, just just remember this is games are things people do for fun. Uh, it's, a, it's a game that challenges you to click 
each little piece of syntax in JavaScript in the order that it is going to be evaluated, uh, which I found absolutely agonizing because the the script is a little for loop and so it's got a you know var i equals zero i less than three i plus plus and then a little bit that's evaluated in the for loop like a console.log sort of thing and so you have to click each one of those in the right order and it is not like you know i I did some computer science at university. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I do. I did at one point know the order that all of these things were supposed to be evaluated in. And playing this game revealed to me that, uh, I don't know, shit. Like, I, I did <laughs> so badly at this. And it, it's, that's interesting because, you know, you don't necessarily need to know that to be a programmer who goes through their programming life building programs. But it's it's one of those little... Uh, things that's going on behind the scenes that um, that at least I found very surprising, and and going a little further, back in your uh, JS Conf talk about Isla, you had a, a little section of that talk where you talk about syntax, and, and sort of you know what, going into that section and, and um, coming out of this experience with with the game Step, my sort of. You know, if you cornered me in a in an alley and said, "Hey, you know," held a gun up and said, "Define syntax in in the context of programming," I would sort of blurt out something about it being, you know, in a text based language. It's just the little bits of, you know, it's it's the punctuation basically, or it's the, you know, the fact that, you know, var is a statement and so it doesn't have a, a return value. It's not an expression. That kind of thing. Like that syntax is just basically like. It's not decorative, it's very functional, but it's it's um, separate from the actual meaning of your code, that it's sort of like maybe conveniences for the sake of the compiler is, is how I might look at it. But in fact, in your talk, you, you describe syntax as being the order that things happen, that that's, that's what it is. And so I went and I looked up the etymology of syntax, and it literally means uh, to put in order. The, the the sin part of syntax means together, and the tax part comes from the same root as the word tactics. And so the syntax of a language is literally uh, talking about the way in which it helps you put things together in a specific order. And I found that really interesting um, and surprising, um, especially in light of, you know, how bad I was at, at understanding the syntax of JavaScript, a language which I am forced to suffer through quite regularly. And so through all of these projects, through CodeLauren, through this, this so-called game, uh, through Isla, all of them, it, it seems to me like you have this really strong affinity for the text of programming, like, like as a medium in a way that to me feels, I don't know if it's literary or if it's, I, I, or it's not linguistic because it's not about speech per se, but there's, to me, it feels like there's something about the text part of programming that you are really interested in. And that, you know, I wrote this this question out in advance before you saying that you might have studied English if you didn't study computer science. And so I was kind of in my head going, oh, interesting. Is that is that fair to say that that you are very, very fond of the textiness of programming? And is that something that you've thought much about? Or is that something that you've just kind of happened upon sort of naturally? Yeah, um, that this is something that I've I've thought about before. It's, it's interesting you bring it up. I think um, the parts of programming that I'm good at are often linguistic, 
and and I, I guess I distinguish the linguistic parts from maybe things like that you might say the graphical parts or the um, uh, you know graphical by which I mean the the, the graphical you know the, a graph for example or like data structures or whatever because it feels like writing prose to me writing writing code so I really enjoy that part of it because it's sort of like just cool stuff like creating a closure or something like that let's say with a, with a function that that then lets you say you say you create a function that returns a function and then you can access the closed over state later when you run the the inner returned function that feels kind of very like reading a novel or something like that to me where you can kind of you know create a structural link in the text from something that ha- happened earlier to, to, to the current moment that the person is reading. Like I said, it feels very linguistic to me. And so I really enjoy those parts a lot. Yeah, and it's something that catches me by surprise, just because I've, uh, I've, uh, <laughs> I've not done a very good job of hiding the fact that I loathe the text of programming. Um, and so to, to immerse myself in your work the way that I did to prepare for this interview and to discover so many ways in which it, it, it feels to me like there's a fondness there that you have for it that kind of seeps through in your work. You know, perhaps that's the thing that is just needed to compel one to create a programming language. Because you've, how, so I, I don't know this offhand, how many programming languages do you think you've made so far? How many different ones? I think only two, are just the, the one for Code Lauren and, and then Isla. I really enjoy that that textual part of it. I think where Step came from um, and where I would say quite a lot of my other projects have come from is is from a desire to understand deeply what's going on um, when a program runs and so when I built Step then so it's all it's all just hard coded basically it's not it's not like a um, the environment that you click on when you when you when you look at step is, is is I've literally like I think just made a list of what what the right order of things to click on is um, because it seemed just much faster that way. The projects like that or like you know the implementing Git in JavaScript um, or uh, I wrote this essay about um, kind of an intro to functional programming. They're all about trying to get at this core of how stuff works. So step, when you click on it, I still get it wrong sometimes. So I actually went back to it a, a few weeks ago, coincidentally, and tried it, and I, and I messed up in several places. I could figure out why I'd messed up. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, you do that bit first. Um, but, but I think I really enjoy how precise one needs to be to, to get it absolutely right. All of these projects, like I say, are born out of a desire to not be confused by things, which is comes from basically from a place of fear that things that I don't understand make me fearful that, you know, I won't be able to, I don't know, might make good stuff using code or, you know, that, that there'll be a bug that I can't fix or something like that. And, and so this, like, going very deep is a way to feel... It's probably like a self-soothing type thing where it's like, this is a way to feel like, yes... I understand this in detail. And it's also, I think, super fun to just understand how stuff works, to like put stuff together. So it's like, for example, just as one example, when I built Git in JavaScript, then learning that by doing Git add, 
to a file that I've effectively created, you know, I've, I've, I've saved that content of that file at that moment forever now, you know, sort of, you know, modulo any, any git clean or whatever, but um, I've saved that, that content forever now. And so I don't need to worry that I'll lose it. Then when you read that in an article, it's like, oh, if you want to keep something, then just get at it. There's, there's a sort of certain sense of unease that certainly comes over me. It's like, oh, why? That's weird. Why? I thought that you only save stuff when you commit it. That, that's weird. And so you don't really trust it and you don't really remember it that well. Whereas by understanding what's going on in the objects directory, uh, inside the .git directory, then I was able to understand why that was true, that git add would save a file for sort of notionally forever. And that is like, gives you a feeling of, like I say, understanding. And it's also sort of cool. So, oh, that's how that works. <laughs> that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Through all of these projects, including uh, Gitlet, CodeLauren, and, and Step, uh, curse, um, <laughs> and uh, Isla, they sort of, they all kind of, they play on this idea that when you're working with a language like C in a very traditional, you know, editor environment, you kind of have to play compiler in your head. Like you sort of have to be familiar enough with the syntax of the language, which means the order that things go in. Um, (laughs) You have to know about, you know, any quirks of the execution environment. You have to know things about if you're writing across multiple files, the way that they're going to be brought together um, and what order they're going to, they're going to run in. And that's something you can, hose yourself with there's there's all of these details that go beyond just the behavior that you're specifying that you need to understand comprehensively in order to confidently build a project and it feels like a lot of your a lot of the tools and games and things that you've built over the years are trying to take some of the mechanical aspects of compilation and either play with them or surface them or, or bring them out of obscurity and out of you know mechanization and make them intuitive or make them interactive in a certain way. And I find that really delightful as a sort of an overarching theme of your work. And I was wondering sort of now, and this is a little bit like what we talked about earlier with Game Maker, but if you were to keep going with that theme of getting people out of having to play compiler in their head or... or or surfacing what the compiler is doing, where do you think you would go with that idea in future projects? It's all, it's all about trying to make it more accessible, trying to make it easier for people to build stuff or not be afraid of computers or, 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 or so. And um, the place I'm at now and have been for the last, you know, sort of more recently, I guess, is sort of like I've touched on before, of getting away from from writing textual code um, and towards a place that, you know, you still need to define programs, so which is to say to define algorithms, I guess is how I think of it, but you don't necessarily need to write code to, to define those algorithms. Trying to move towards a place where that's not necessary, which I think is would hopefully makes it even more accessible because taking code mostly out of the equation, I think, lowers the barrier quite a lot certainly in terms of perceive, you know, people's perception and the fear that comes from that and also from the actual challenge of it. And so I think it gets, I think there's a way to get completely away from code forever for everyone, but I, I found a useful North Star more recently to be 
no programming ever. And it's like, you know, obviously you're probably going to fail at that, but it's it's a useful mental discipline to so say, like, how can I do this without programming? Because um, it seems highly likely. If we're still writing code, most of software is being created by people writing code in 100 years, then I will be very surprised. And so it seems helpful to try and run towards in that direction as, as quickly as possible now rather than sort of waiting for, 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 for it, to, it to come in the future. And I think that part of that is about helping, hopefully making things that are more accessible for other people. So that's like working on Airtable, for example. Um, and partly it's about actually moving myself away from writing code. I mean, obviously I write code to, for my living at the moment, but I think that... You know, I put whatever it is, I don't know, 20 years into, into learning to be a good programmer. Um, still learning tons, still tons to learn. But, but you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a solid programmer now. But I find myself just wanting to get away from writing code more and more. So Game Maker is one example of that. Another example is, is trying to build uh, and prototype interfaces without writing any code. So by using both drawing on paper or by using... UI prototyping tools like Origami is pretty cool, or Axia is amazing. I, I had no idea why. And so I feel like the last six months has been me discovering tools that are 20 years old that are totally amazing and that I, I wish I'd discovered a really long time ago. Um, I know that feeling. Because <laughs> they're just so much faster. It's just like, oh, God. Um, and so essentially just... You know, I don't want to say that programming sucks because it obviously doesn't. Obviously, I love programming, but I do kind of find programming very slow, even though I'm quite good at it, and sort of very frustrating. And there's just so much more joy that comes from not needing to write everything in code and being able to, to just move whatever it is that you're making forwards so much faster than if you have to write code to do it. There are some uh, some people probably in the audience who are going to get a little bit hung up on your <laughs> use of the word programming. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of define what you see as the difference between coding and programming and maybe something like, you know, using HyperCard or maybe something like using a drawing app or something like that. Because there's some people out there for whom, you know, like drawing a picture in Photoshop is programming. Like they they have that broad of a definition of what it means to be programming, you know. And then there's some people where the line is HTML, or there's some people where the line, if if there's some people where if you are writing in a dynamic language, you're not programming, you're scripting. So I'm I'm just in that you have made a very universal statement. No programming ever. I think it would be interesting to hear where you put the boundary around what it means to do programming in light of that. Yeah, no, th thanks for letting me clarify that. That's, that's super, that's super, absolutely right. Um, I think that the rough definition that I'm using here is textual programming as a kind of a, a rough rule of thumb definition. Um, I think there are some things that aren't textual, but are still very close to it so like scratch for example it's like you know you're not writing much text but it still feels very textual uh, it's pretty close really and so I would include things like that um, I think if, if one defines programming as uh, creating something that defines an algorithm 
then I think that could be helpful. And so in that lens, then like <laughs> writing a Word document is, is, is programming because you have types and characters in that dictate how the computer should render some text on the, on, on the screen. And so that feels like technically correct, but not very useful. Yeah, um, and yeah. so I wouldn't go that far my, myself. Um, I think it, it, what's useful is to have a, a useful definition. And so I think of it as being able to define the behavior of software without writing textual code is, is a rough rule of thumb, you know, with a bunch of caveats, basically. And so that's like a good example of that, I think, is the example I gave of Game Maker of defining the sprite where you don't have to write any code to decide to show, oh, this set of images go together into a sprite. That's the first part of the algorithm. The second part is that they should be shown in this order that I've dictated by dragging them around. And the third part is that the image should change at this speed, which you could also define graphically and so on. And so that's definitely an algorithm that you've created. And so I am not trying to get away from that type of programming. I think that type of programming is really great. And even if it's not necessarily an algorithm that you've created like a new kind of, you know, search or something like that, it's still an algorithm that you are like, you're still doing algorithmic thinking when you're doing it. Uh, much in the same way you're doing algorithmic thinking when you write a recipe or something like that. Exactly right. It still seems to use the same parts of the brain, but I, I think that, you know, rearranging those images inside GameMaker to, to put them in the order that you want them to be displayed, yeah, it's creating an algorithm and it requires algorithmic thinking, but I think sometimes people get confused and say, oh, well, if you're doing algorithmic thinking then you must be capable of programming. And it's like, yes, that's true, but it's so much easier to not do it in code. Mm -hmm. Both for the, you know, the most amazing program in the, you know, both for John Carmack and for, you know, somebody who's just writing their first line of code. I, just, I think there are easier and harder ways of creating algorithms. And I guess I'm trying to push towards the easier ones. And just because uh, it popped in my head, I bet a, 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 an even harder interface than many of the programming languages that have survived to this day um, would be something like uh, like very complicated legal contracts, because those are, you know, algorithms that have algorithmic thinking behind them. And the interface for them is, is just horrendous. So it's not as bad as it could be, but it certainly could be a lot better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so my kind of my last question I, I thought would be a nice lighthearted kind of thing. Um, and that is something we've talked a little bit about this already, but I want to go a little deeper into this because I'm that kind of nerd. Um, we're both gamers. And I personally think that games have a really big role to play in um, both the future of programming directly, but also just in the space of thinking about what the future of programming might look like. There's a lot that the people making these sort of programming tools like you and I are working on and the people listening to this show are working on, uh, that, that things that we could learn from looking at video games, both video games as works of art that 
inside them contain interesting ideas that we could borrow for programming, but also video games as a culture and an industry that produces software and and is uh, wrestling with a lot of the same problems that we are wrestling with. And so I wanted to uh, just take a moment to ask you if there are any favorite games that you have that are fun to look at through the lens of futuristic programming or through the lens of people working on this kind of dynamic software what 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 do you see as interesting things that we could point to over in the games world that it might be worth us paying more attention to part of my answer is is around the the, the if you like the non interface non expression related parts of of games so for example um the way a community can form around something like Minecraft, for example. I think future of programming people, including, including me for sure, can learn a lot from that. Uh, so it's like, that's a, my understanding is a super supportive community, very exploratory, lots of different people with different objectives, kind of all working in the same area, kind of, you know, amazing community of practice around YouTube and, and friendship groups sharing ideas and sharing techniques and so on. And so I think there's a ton of like just community related stuff that that that, that we can all learn from 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 specific video games. So that that's one part of it. Another part of it I think we can learn from is that games are extremely good at conveying complex systems to people in, in a very short amount of time in a very clear way. And so it's just kind of some of the stuff is like next level. So, for example, a game like The Witness by Jonathan Blow, which is, uh, if you're not familiar, is kind of a puzzle game. It's 3D. Uh, you walk around solving sort of puzzles on that are on panels placed around the world. Um, it gets more interesting and sophisticated than that. But it's 100% like non-linguistic. Like, I think there's... There's maybe like an X shown on the screen to say press the X button on your PlayStation controller. But beyond that, it teaches you an extremely complex, you know, I almost want to say language that you need to solve these puzzles without any words. And it does it in this like amazingly ramped way. It's so cool. And so I think there's a lot of stuff about communication and about designing sim systems that can be learnt and so on that, that we can learn from various games too. I think there's also things to be learned from really great UIs. So the, the example that, that springs to mind, um, when, you, when you play Mario, you know, like the original Mario 1 on the Nintendo, the, the way jumping feels as Mario is just so precisely tuned that like you hold down the button for longer and you go higher. You hold it down and you just, for, for you know, the maximum amount of time and you'll float just a little bit, but not that much. There's this kind of beautiful kind of exponential ramp up to, to how how you move when you run and, and, and all sorts of things. That, so much complexity in just a few buttons that I, I think it's an incredibly expressive interface that they've created. And uh, it's just for jumping. And so I think we can all learn a lot from there. Um, and one of my favorite genres of YouTube videos is 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 people explaining how games were designed. So there's a really cool one. Um, I, can't, I think it might be with Miyamoto. I'm not sure um, where. No, it can't be with him. Um, it's somebody explaining how the first level of Mario works, where it teaches you that 
that, for example, it almost forces you to trigger the first mushroom to jump out of the block when you when you jump into it. Um, and then the mushroom is sent straight at you. So you're like, oh, no, it's it must be bad. It's going to hurt me. And it's tough to avoid. And so more likely you hit it. And then you end up growing and you discover, oh, no, mushrooms in this context are good. And just like all of these like nonverbal ways of communicating things, I think we can learn a lot about. Because essentially games are learning systems and they're just so much better than, than programming systems are. It's amazing. So I, I think it's, we, yeah, we can learn so much. I love those examples. And um, yeah, like just to just to fill in a bit of color on, on, the, on the last two, like in The Witness, an example of the language that the game teaches you non-verbally is that the panels that have the puzzles on them that are scattered around the world, they challenge you to draw a line sort of through a maze from one corner to another corner or one side to another side and you can draw a line that can't intersect itself and so you can figure that out very easily because you start tracing the line around the panel and the and the game's interface sort of like laser focuses you on this activity it's it's the sort of thing where um, the game does a tremendously good job of getting you into this space where the only control that you have is I'm moving my my mouse or I'm moving my joystick and and this line is being drawn and you can play with it and explore it and discover, okay, it can't intersect itself. There's this little pulsing thing that if I draw the line up to, it lets me complete the puzzle and then that's the, the most basic thing. And then it builds on top of that you know, in some of the puzzles, there might be three little dots in a little square of the grid that is the maze that you're drawing through. And you'll figure it out through playing with it that if you draw a line that goes past those three little dots, it won't let you complete the puzzle. And based on the arrangement of the maze, it might kind of force you to draw a line around those three dots in a certain way. And it will do that again and again and show you that every time you are drawing a line around those three dots and the puzzle is accepting your solution, it's because the line that you've drawn goes around those three dots on three sides. And then it will show you, you know, two dots and you have to figure out, okay, if I surround those two dots on two sides, then it lets me complete the puzzle. And so it introduces this mechanic of, you know, this symbol will have a, a variable number to it that is the number of sides around which that square of the grid needs to have your line go around it and then there'll be another uh symbol and and some of the symbols in the game look like tetris pieces they're these little tetris piece symbols like a like a little t or a little l shape or that sort of thing and the game will teach you non-verbally that to complete a puzzle that contains one of those symbols you have to enclose that symbol in a path that has the same shape as that Tetris-like piece that, and they're not tetronomo, Tetronomos, they might have five segments or three segments or whatever, but it, it introduces something like 10 or 12 of these different mechanics and then puts them in all sorts of different combinations where by the end of the game, you are, you know, like this master at this, this, this language of, of drawing lines that are constrained by all of these weird symbols. Um, and, and the symbols are sort of forcing you into a specific 
course of action and you can do it incredibly quickly. And one of the very late game challenges is you have something like a, like a minute and a half to solve this whole series of these puzzles that are incredibly complex and that are uh, randomized every time you do them. Because most of the puzzles in the game are the same every time you do them. And, and these puzzles at the, at the end game are randomized and time limited. And, and there's a very juicy reward for completing that. But it's, it's this, just this masterful way of showing that the presence of an interactive system that you can have a dialogue with will let you have a learning experience that can be radically different from what we're used to when that learning experience is going through a medium that is human language, where it's a direct, you know, teacher student kind of relationship, and they're talking about some subject or when it's, you know, like a textbook or something like that. Here is an environment where through a little bit of trial and error, but mostly just very carefully focused design, you can have a learning experience that teaches you something very complex. And of course, that complex thing was designed with the fact that it needed to be taught in mind. And so it's not necessarily like you could apply this to teach an arbitrary thing. But there are, um, I think there's a, there's a really good spectrum there where from games we can see that there are so many different things that can be taught in ways that are nonverbal and in ways that are playful, that if you are looking for features to design into your futuristic programming environment, there's a great big, you know, a menu of choices you can choose from for interactions or for behaviors or for uh, dynamic relationships between things that we can see and we've proven are very easy to teach intuitively or that there exists a way to do a really good job of teaching it intuitively and, and, and through play rather than, you know, didactically where you have to explain it with a pop-up or a, or a manual or something like that. So I, I loved that example. Yeah. I always find it interesting what games choose to essentially give you, you know, to, 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 to just explain to you or to, give you for free and what they want you to figure out on your own because clearly that if they just left you with nothing then there would be a lot of frustration which would be not that much fun but at the same time make everything really easy that that's not that fun either and I think a, a really strong example of that that comes to mind is a game called Into the Breach which I also loved which is essentially like a You've got a few little tanks that you control um, and you have to fight off some other tanks in a little sort of eight by eight grid sort of isometric view. And they spent apparently a couple of years, uh, they kind of got the game pretty much nailed down, but they spent a couple of years working on the UI, working out how to explain the concepts to the player uh, in a way that wouldn't be frustrating. And I sort of find it, so for example, they'll they'll make it very clear that when you have one of your tanks fire, so you sort of you essentially say, Oh, I want my tank to fire over here, and they will show you the immediate consequences of that. So the shell will hit the enemy thing, and then that enemy will get flung back by two squares, let's say. Um, and then that will they'll get flung into a building which will destroy that building. And so they've obviously given you quite a lot for free there. They're showing it to you in advance of it happening. Exactly. So you get, to, you get to have a preview of what is about to happen if you decide to take that action. And what I find interesting there is like, okay, they're, they're kind of giving you that for free. So they're, 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 
they could they're certainly saving you from some mistakes that you could be making but clearly what they think is interesting is the slightly longer term ramifications that you do have to figure out for yourself so there's this notion of what should be told to the player or the user or whatever that 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 would be an omission if not told and then what shouldn't be told that would be like giving the game away or maybe taking the fun out of it or like taking away that fun of exploration, you, you know, whatever it is. And I, I do not know how they decided what to put in the, we'll tell you this and what to put in the, you have to figure this one out for yourself categories. And I, I think about it quite a lot. I find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's another game that I loved and another great example. And I like, um, specifically that you talked about that they they made the game and they made the you know the the engine and the graphics and and all that sort of thing and had this game playable and then spent a, a tremendously long time tuning the ui of it and i think that that's a valuable lesson because it's not like games are different from the kind of software tools we're building in terms of the economics of it necessarily or in terms of the the process that you have to go through to create a thing like game developers want to make their game and they want to ship it and they want to get it out there into the world. It's not like all games have developers who spend that long working on the interface. That's very unusual. A lot of games, the, you know, they'll spend the most time working on the graphics and the world and on populating it and, and fleshing out the story and on, you know, if it's a big AAA game, recording all the dialogue and and doing you know actual logic uh, for what characters will do and and all the all the things that happen as you progress through the game. Like there's there's um, a ton of things that take a ton of work, and designing the UI is often not one of them. And so what makes Into the Breach such a wonderful example is that they did take that extra time that it took to just polish the UI of this thing into something very, very special and very unique. And that that aspect of it is what made this game remarkable and is what made it, I, I think personally at least, I think it's what made it into such a big success and such a big hit commercially uh, was that by by taking that much time to really tune the UI, for one, they took a game style, a genre that is normally very niche, and they made it approachable to a, a broader audience. But they also exposed a lot of the the beauty of that of that genre to people who previously wouldn't know that they would be uh, interested in that kind of a game. And, and they did have the luxury of getting to take that time because their previous game was sort of a surprise hit. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where. You know, if you are if you are a Mary Rose Cook and you are working on your Isla, or you're an Ivan and you're working on you know my past projects that nobody that nobody's heard about or cares about, it's absolutely worth it to live with something for a long time and to to invest that energy and that effort in polish and especially polish on the side of the of the user interface and on making it. Like you said, Mary, you know, deciding what to expose and what to obscure, or, or in the case that they did, like very specifically, they show so many things that other games hide, and other games hide them because they think that the fun will come from seeing the dominoes all fall down uh, as a surprise. And what these developers of Into the Breach found is, no, you can show, uh, you can preview pretty much 
everything that's going to happen. And at that point, you'll get you'll from somebody who hasn't played it, you'll get the objection. Well, at that point, why even play the game? Like if if I sit down and I immediately see, oh, this is everything that's going to happen. Where's the fun in that? And they show that it can be more fun when you give people more information because that lets you constrain the actions that the player can take in more interesting ways, more severely than you could constrain them if you didn't uh, show them everything. And and another example of that that I love very much is a game by Zach Gage called Good Sudoku, which is a, a game that Zach made, and, and Zach does this for a lot of games. He did this with Solitaire, with a lot of things, where he will make a game that is based on a very, very standard game that everybody knows and everybody's bored to death of, like Solitaire or like Sudoku or something like that, where you think, well, really, you know, this space has been pretty well explored. What more is there to do with it? And what Zach's approach to the game is, is to build a very powerful user interface that lets you play the game at a higher level than the normal interfaces for that game would allow. So most Sudoku apps will replicate the experience of playing a Sudoku on paper. And good Sudoku will do things like it will automate all your annotations that say like, well, this cell can't be a three and that cell has to be a five or a seven or whatever. And it fills in all of those, those notes for you and saves you a whole ton of manual work. And you'd think, well, doesn't that just take the, the joy out of it? And it's no, because what that enables you to do is to A, very quickly and through a very, very good user interface that he developed for this, learn more advanced techniques for Sudoku that you might not have even known existed if you were just playing Sudokus casually. Like if a row, which has to contain all the digits from one to nine, has two cells that are empty, you know exactly what those two cells are. They're the only two numbers that are missing from the digits one to nine. And that's a technique that most people might not realize unless they play Sudoku very, very seriously and get to a high level that his interface exposes immediately. And so he can let you play Sudokus that are way, way, way harder than you'd normally ever be able to play because the interface is so good. And in so doing, learn all these new, more advanced techniques and see some of the beauty that that game has uh, behind it that is normally obscured by that interface. And so, yeah, I think programming, we could do a ton of that in so many different areas. I think, you know, maybe Elm's error messages are an easy thing to point to as a, as a programming project where they put in a tremendous amount of effort to say, you know, what are what are some things that we can expose to the user that would normally be somewhat hidden that they'd have to do a lot of work to learn for themselves. But there's probably many, many, many more things that we could do like that if we were each individually or collectively able to take that time and, and really spend it living with our interfaces and, and really honing the heck out of them. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that often hand in hand with the attitude of, oh, you're taking the, you know, the work out of it or you're taking the the, the, the fun out of it or something like that is, is this attitude that comes up in programming quite a lot of like, oh, if you can't simulate what the computer's doing in your mind, then you're not a proper programmer or something like that. And it's this kind of silly, I don't know, it's almost sort of like a moralistic viewpoint to take that 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 you should be doing the grunt work you should be doing you should understand everything all the way down to the ones and zeros or whatever in order to be able to do anything and i think it's just it's it's ridiculous <laughs> mm -hmm. agreed 
Well, Mary, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and for taking this tour through the the history of your projects and and through my uh, torment in playing with one of them and my delight in playing with all the other ones and uh, sharing all the interesting thoughts that you've built up along the way. Yeah, th- thanks so much for for having me, Ivan. It's 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 genuinely a huge honor to to be able to talk to you. So thanks so much. So that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank you once again, Mary Rose Cook, for coming on the show. And I am just, you know, <laughs> delighting in being able to uh, to to have the the position of power that I have as the person who is recording the end of the episode separate from the interview when when Mary's not here to say, you know, oh, thank you. No, thank you. No, I get the last word. So I get to say thank you, Mary. It was super fun to talk to you. And I'm thrilled that as part of doing this show, I get to interview so many people who are doing such interesting work. And I've had uh, Mary on my list of people to get on the show forever and ever and ever. And it is a joy to finally have had this conversation. Um, Some closing thoughts before uh, I wrap this up and turn you over to whatever podcast is next in your feed. I have, speaking of podcasts, a new podcast that I've started, and I think I'd be remiss to not, you know, give it a plug here at the end when I'm when I'm doing a little bit of fourth wall messing around and saying, hey, I'm the editor. I get to, you know, have my own little soapbox, blah, blah, blah. This new podcast that I've started is about my own future of coding project called HEST, which I have talked about, I think, in passing once or twice on this show, but not in very much depth. If you would like to hear more about that, or if maybe you've seen it, if you know, in some of the videos I've shared on the Future of Coding Slack or uh, some things on Twitter or various places, if you're curious what this is, I've started a podcast where the whole point of the podcast is that I'm just going to do very short episodes once a week. And by very short, I mean like 10 minutes. 15 minutes, like super, super short focused episodes on just a single piece of the design of this project. And I just talk about, you know, one or two little ideas. And it's a very lighthearted show. It's very free form. It's very daydreamy. And it's kind of inspired by some of the early episodes of this Future of Coding podcast where Steve Kraus, he would do these research reflection episodes where he would talk about his own thinking about what his project for the future of coding might look like. And I really, really loved those episodes. I'll I'll peel the curtain back a little more here. Those episodes were by far uh, less popular than the interview episodes. And that's probably a combination of factors. The biggest one is probably that when you do an interview, you are sharing that interview with the audience that is built in for the show, plus the audience that that guest is bringing to the show, the people who were already fond of the work of that guest. So you get this kind of magnification effect. And in the case of the research reflections, those episodes only go out to the built-in audience for the show, so they weren't very popular. And so I think um, they aren't worth doing in an ongoing way in this feed. Like, they're not the kind of thing that I would want to start doing for any number of reasons. So I decided to start a new show 
And that new show is where I'll talk about my own work. So if you are interested in that, and I will warn you, it has a very different vibe from the vibe of this show. So you might find that very appealing. You might love it, and it might make you not want to listen to this show anymore. <laughs> or the exact opposite. Go check that out. And the way to find it is in your podcast player of choice. Just search for my name, Ivan Reese. That seems to be the most reliable way to find the show. Otherwise, there'll be a link in the show notes and on the episode page. That episode page, once again, is futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 50. There will be a full transcript of the interview up there, as well as links to various things that Mary and I talked about and our two sponsors, once again, Replit and Glide. Thank you both for sponsoring the transcript and the show. And hopefully you'll hear from me again <laughs> before the season changes. Um, and uh, on that note, uh, oh, how do I normally end these things? Um, thanks for listening and I'll see you again in the future. I, I used to have an ending. Uh, that's the problem with not doing these episodes except for once every season as I forget what the ending is. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs>